0: Welcome to the science of sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex.
1: Hi, Joe.
2: Oh, hey. And usually I'm supposed to say hi first. I know. I
1: just thought I would switch it up. Wow. Hi.
2: You know what? I looked away for a second. You're like, (laughs) hi. I'm like, whoa. It's episode 43. Look at Dr. John, are you (laughs) taking my job or something? (laughs) Well, uh,
1: you're taking my job today, so I'm taking yours.
2: Kind of, sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so today's guest, I sort of set up.
1: Yeah, so you all know how Joe has been really growing and progressing and and learning all these things about sexuality and science. And he started to ask really good questions.
2: Starting? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, you started a while ago,
1: yeah. but now you're asking these good questions okay. of, of our guests. And now he... Actually, found our guests for today's show.
2: That's right, and and one thing is, I found her in my home state of New Jersey. Wow, which you're who not-
1: knew that Jersey <laughs> had people doing sex research?
2: They, there, there is. I'm telling you, we can't get into about that now. But there's a lot in New Jersey has to offer. Mm-hmm. I know you I'm had sure. some issues because you had an ex over there. <laughs>
1: (laughs) That has nothing to do with that. I
2: think you're holding it against it. But anyway, so we have Casey Mile today. No, I
1: gave Jersey a try because of him.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. But now you'll never go back. (laughs) Anyway, Casey Mile's going to be on the show today. And a couple things we're going to talk to her about. One is the female condom, which I didn't even know existed. What? Female condom? What? 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 You did not know
1: a female, or otherwise known as internal condom, existed? No. Okay, listeners, had I known this about Joe, this may have never right, worked I'm out, out to the beginning of were... it. No, no,
2: no. no um, how, how would I know there's a female con- Like, do they sell them in stores?
1: Well, I think Casey's going to tell us that because oh, okay. her study is about the availability.
2: Oh, see? All of the
1: female condom in the Philadelphia and uh, New Jersey, Camden area, see? I think. So that's what she's going to talk about. So she's going to teach you and maybe many listeners out there about the female condom.
2: Yep, didn't even know it was a thing. <laughs> I know the diaphragm and all that stuff. Is it like the diaphragm?
1: No. Stop looking at me like that. I mean, it, me is, like it is a contraceptive okay. method, All yes, right. but it's a condom.
2: For females?
1: For vagina owners. Vagina
2: owners. Yes. Correct. Okay.
1: All right. Yes. Cool. So it's an internal condom that you put it inside the vaginal canal Okay, as opposed to over the penis.
2: Okay. The, the wiener. Okay. I got it. Okay. Cool. All right. Thank you, Dr. John, for clearing it out for me. I'm sure She's Casey will give you a very me welcome. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You're you're mocking me like I'm supposed to know what a female condom is. I don't have a vagina. Why would I know what a female condom is?
1: I don't have a penis and I know what a male condom is. Yeah, you
2: know a penis better than most people do. Let me tell you. Well,
1: that is probably (laughs) true. All right. More than most penis owners. Yeah.
2: Yes, you are uh, not only the resident uh, sex scientist, but you're also the resident uh, penis expert. I think I (laughs) I I could say that, right?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, I like being a penis expert.
2: Okay. All
1: yeah, right. I fancy myself one. So, so
2: where will the penis expert be out and about in the near nice future? Nice
1: transition. Nice transition, Joe. If
2: you're looking for a penis expert, where would you find one? And Well, something? you
1: will be able to find me in two different locations on two different days. Okay. The week of October 15th, so on October 15th and on October 18th. But we will not be talking much about penises necessarily.
2: Penises so I'm not going to be
1: doing any penis examinations. Okay. Yeah, if, if that's what you're interested in.
2: Not in this. Not, no. not okay. these two days. All right. But
1: if you'd like to talk about open relationships and how to make them work and if they're for you and, and all of that good stuff that has to do with... Consensual non-monogamy, I'm doing a workshop at The Assemblage, the co-working space here in uh, Manhattan, on October 15th for Touchpoint. And then on October 18th, only two days later, or three Mm. days later, I'm doing a debunking sex myths that ruin lives, sex and social, at the Hacienda Villa, where we're going to be debunking lots of sex myths that might uh, make your lives, your sexual and relationship lives, worse than they could be.
2: Cool. And one thing we do a lot on the show is mm-hmm. debunk things. Especially, yes. you'll always catch me. I'll be like, "Oh, men do this," and you're like, "Not all men, mothman, men." Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so let's, uh, you know, let's, let's take some time to debunk some stuff here.
1: Okay, you have a myth for me to debunk.
2: Yes. Essentially, uh, how about the divorce rates? Okay. In the United States, uh-huh. supposedly increasing. People say the divorce rates going up, but you know what? There's an Atlantic article right now that's trending online about millennials and divorce. And we always joke that millennials are killing things. Millennials <laughs> seem to be killing divorce now. <laughs> let's, you know, let's give it to the millennials. Yay, you're killing divorce. killing
1: divorce. Great, great. I'm so glad that you're so happy about this. Okay? No, because okay.
2: the article from the Atlantic says divorce rates have dropped by about 18% over the last 10 years. And so the millennials getting credit for it because they're the majority of the people that have been getting married over the last 10 years. So what say you, Dr. Jana? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I you know that's great news obviously and you know that there was this expectation I think a lot of people when the divorce rates started increasing somewhere around the 70s is when they Start shooting up, yeah. you know, they went from something like 5% of marriages getting divorced to over the course of the next couple of decades, they went up to like 20% of people or wow. marriages getting divorced and wow. then 25 and then, you know, 30 almost percent. And so people kind of were under this impression that they were just going to keep increasing until everybody was, <laughs> was divorced. 99% of people <laughs> yeah. are divorced. Which, come on, yeah, obviously make, makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, they, it was to be expected that it was going to hit some ceiling like a
2: threshold threshold yeah. and
1: the the divorce rate was not going to increase much beyond that but so this is good news that it's also decreased to some extent and it has decreased and actually you know leveled off and decreased among the the youngest uh people uh, in particular
2: yeah so and and the research is saying it's two reasons and you could probably you mm-hmm. dr john being the si- sex well, science expert okay. probably know what the two reasons are but one <laughs> millennials are waiting longer to get married mm-hmm. now how old were you when you got married
1: 27.
2: 27. So,
1: you know, you're not... I was actually right on the average of what it is. But yes, yes. Okay.
2: So they're waiting longer. And second, millennials are avoiding divorce by simply not getting married.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's it's interesting. Like, you know, you read these data and you're like, oh my God, great. You know, fewer people are getting divorced. Yeah, but fewer people are also getting married to begin with. (laughs) So you had, back in the day, everybody was under the pressure marry. And people who wanted to be married and who didn't want to be married, everybody was getting married just because everybody was doing it. And of course, you had a maybe not certainly not a majority, but a significant minority of people in there who never wanted to be married. And the chances of them staying married were much lower to begin with. So they were much more likely to divorce. Now, those people who never wanted to be married now have much less incentive to sort of be forced into or kind of coerced or or whatever into marriage. So they're going to stay unmarried and they're not going to bring that percentage of people getting divorced. They're not going to bring it up like they were back in the day.
2: Right. So when they decide to get married, they want to be 100% sure that this (laughs) partner is the right one for them. So that's
1: the other reason, right, that the people who are getting married are now less likely to divorce because they're waiting longer. And there's been this correlation between age of first marriage and chances of divorce has existed even before, that Mm. the older you were when you got married, the lower the chances that you would get divorced. And that makes sense, right? If you're waiting longer, you know yourself better, you know what you're looking for in a partner, you're much more likely to be certain that this is kind of a good, compatible, long-term, compatible relationship, you're also much more likely to be economically stable. And that's another thing that I think is important to bring in when we're discussing marriage, that economic stability, it's a big factor in marital stability. We've known for a while that it's not just the older you are when you get married, the lower your rates of divorce, but also the higher your educational status and income level, the lower your chances of divorce. Because marriage both... Consolidates sort of economic stability and mm-hmm. helps you be more economically stable, but also you need some level of a well-paying job and all that to have economic stability in the first place for your marriage. And if you uh, don't have that, it's much h- harder to find a partner and to kind of create a home.
2: It's very chicken and the egg though, right? It is,
1: well, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly, and it's both. They yeah. reinforce one another. Right. And back in the day, people without college degrees could still get pretty well-paying jobs there was a lot more kind of financial stability for people who didn't necessarily have college degrees. Whereas these days, the good-paying jobs, the well-paying jobs for the less educated folks are not there anymore. Hmm. And so they are struggling to find the economic stability that they need in order to form marriages that are going to be long-lasting. And also the fact that you know, once they get into these marriages, they're less likely to be long lasting because of the economic instability. So so nowadays you have, uh, you know, college educated folks much more likely to get married and be married right. than people with high school diplomas only. And in that way, marriage is both in a way ref- of reflection of the opportunities that a college degree give you mm-hmm. to have you know more the economic comfort uh, stability and right. stuff yep and therefore find a partner who you can you can create uh, c- uh, this this marital community with and then also it's it's a a force or a driver that might widen the economic gap that is responsible for this widening economic inequality that we're seeing more and more in our country because if you're not married you cannot pool your resources, because pooling resources, pooling economic resources with another person to support yourself and your family—that is, in itself, a a a force of stability. Yeah. Right. And if you don't have that, you it's don't. much harder to get yourself out of that poverty or out of that econo- economically unstable uh, environment.
2: Wow. <laughs> Who knew that there the, the, the was such? You know, you mentioning it, you breaking it down like that—you never even think about. Stuff Mm. like that. It's 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 so deep in the weeds (laughs) of the stats and everything, but it makes perfect sense. It it also you know without you throwing on there, it also being college educated and having a good paying job makes you more uh, attractive. To people, absolutely, so we get more, yeah, yeah, (laughs) which is why
1: exactly, which is why you, if you do have that higher paying job, if you have the college, if you have the college degree nowadays, it's much more likely that you'll have a good, a well paying job, right, and that will make you more attractive to other partners who want to make a nest with you, right, pick you as their long term partner that they're going to have children and whatnot with, and if you have that, Mm. that is going to make you more economically stable and more likely to then continue that marriage and not get divorced. So, I mean, this is so it's interesting <laughs> this conversation actually moves away from the psychology of sexuality and relationships yeah. and we're getting much more into the sociology and economics and yeah. and all that of relationships. Which also which,
2: bleeds into the psychology of it too of course, as we were just talking of course, about, you know, of the, the, the the attractiveness and all that other stuff. But but you know, I'm glad we were able to debunk that <laughs> and also so, learn some more <laughs> stuff about it, which is Yeah, so I
1: think if if we can sort of summarize all of this. Basically, we have not increasing divorce rates. We have slightly decreasing yep. divorce rates, especially among the millennial, the younger generation out there. And this is mostly driven by the fact that people are waiting longer to get married. Many of the people whose marriages would be more unstable anyway are opting out of marriage, which includes the people who are less educated and less well off because they just are yeah. not even getting married in the first place these days. And mm. if they did, they would be more likely to divorce, but the the divorce rate is declining mm. because they're not getting married to begin with. And also, the peop- other people who are not getting married to begin with who would be driving up the divorce rate are the people who just don't want to get married. Yeah. People who in past years were getting married because of pressure. So when you... Put all of that together, both these economic and demographic changes and the preferences mm-hmm. that people might have, yeah. that they're no longer the, the changing social norms that we have around, oh, you all have to get married. You put all of that together people also waiting longer, and then you get, um, yeah, you get why we're seeing fewer marriages getting divorced.
2: Great stuff, Dr. Jana. So we should get our guests in here at this time, right?
1: <laughs> All right, should we talk about the female condom?
2: Yes, I wanna find out <laughs> what a female condom is. Uh, so tell us about our guest, uh, Casey.
1: So Casey Mile recently graduated from the Masters of Human Sexuality Education uh, track at Widener University, and she is now a sexuality educator who applies trauma-informed, sex-positive, and medically accurate approach to sex education at various uh, universities, agencies, conferences, residential programs. She also offers infant massage workshops to parents and caregivers Hmm. to facilitate bonding, which maybe we'll, uh, we'll get to a little bit. But the primary reason we're having her here is because she recently published a paper on the distribution of female condoms. And I think it's obviously an interesting question, (laughs) obviously because Joan never even knew it It existed. So part of the problem with the female condom is that it's nowhere to be found. And that's what she looked at. So let's get her in the studio and ask about where the female condom is hiding. (laughs) KC Mile, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. It's so nice to have... People in the studio. I love having people in yeah, the studio. You it's, feel the vibe. I know. feel the vibe.
2: <laughs> all right. So, Casey, you didn't hear the first part of the show, but uh, Dr. John was mocking me because I didn't know uh, what a female condom was. Now, first of all, are those super common? Should I feel bad for not knowing? I was, not <laughs> not, I
1: was just shocked. <laughs> I was so shocked because I thought everybody
0: knew. But, I mean, I should know better. Yes. I should know better. Thank you. I sh- you you should should know should. better.
1: Okay. I'm you should shut not out. feel bad. Okay, good, thank you. <laughs> you
0: should not feel bad. Uh, there's plenty of people that aren't aware of what the female condom is. And right now we're also calling it the internal condom rather than the female condom. So that's another layer to oh, it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, so you, can m- you may not have heard e- either of those names Can before. you think of
1: why we're now moving away from female male and into internal external condom?
2: Oh, you're putting me on the spot. Yes, aren't you? yes. Joe. What do you, what do you think? Do you have
1: a sense? Do you have be, an idea of why it might be? It's doing?
2: probably because of gender, uh, how people uh, de- defy themselves in their gender, right? Something like that?
1: Yeah. Okay. Great job. Come on. Wow. <laughs> see, see, he's learned so <laughs> much yes, over this year. <laughs> oh,
2: yeah. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a natural.
1: En- enough of Joe. Clearly, yes. Joe knows a thing or two. <laughs> Tell us what is the internal condom?
0: Sure. So, the female or internal condom is actually uh, another. Use for contraception or a way to prevent STI. So it's a barrier method that can be used. And it can be used anally or it can be used vaginally. Okay, so anybody can actually use this barrier method uh, to prevent STIs or pregnancy.
1: So it's a condom. Okay. I mean, it's a condom-looking thing, just like the typical condom that you've seen. Oh, okay. Right?
2: And it looks like the, the like, well, I don't want to say not. male condom, but <laughs> <laughs> does it look like the, the condom we're all used to using? <laughs> uh,
0: I mean, I actually have one with me if you would love to oh, see. The people on uh, listening won't be able to, yeah. but what it looks like, it comes in a rectangular package.
2: Oh, that looks okay. larger than a regular condom package yes
0: though. larger <laughs> okay. definitely larger um, and then same thing as you would use regular condoms you would check for an expiration date prior to using uh, you want to make sure before you open it that you slide it down away from so you don't create any tears in it and then once you're opening oops, so open it's very lubricated so in addition to being larger than what we would call the male or external condom, it's a lot larger, uh, a lot more lubricated. So we have this external ring here, uh, and then it it goes about four or five inches down. There's an internal ring that looks similar to a Nuva ring, if anyone's familiar with what that looks like. So a clear ring inside of this slippery, luby, Great barrier. (laughs) So Joe, do you have any questions? You're looking over here. I'm like boggled. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. okay. Where should I start?
2: (laughs) The the size of it. It looks like a see-through sock. It's huge, (laughs) right? Why is it so big? It's larger.
1: I don't know I don't know to what extent people can really get a sense of this without mm-hmm. seeing it. Right. But it is a cylinder. It's a cylindrical mm-hmm. type condom that has two rings on each end and it's much larger.
2: Much, much larger yes, yeah. than
1: the regular condom that most people are familiar with.
2: It's
0: inserted inside the hole as opposed to over the penis, But why does
2: it have to be so large? That's my thing. That's huge.
0: Part of the benefit to this condom is because of it being large, you can use it in different ways. If you're using it with a penis, inserting either anally or vaginally, it can be inserted onto the penis prior to it becoming hard or uh, having an erection. Uh, so there's a benefit there, whereas we say with the external condom that you would put it on after an erection occurs. Got it. You get sort of inserted into
1: the vagina mm-hmm, or the anus, mm-hmm. and it sort of it stays there, and the penis can go in and out. Mm-hmm. Huh. Or a toy. Or a, or toy. a toy, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm.
2: Wow. Wow. Who knew? Yeah, <laughs> not me, <many>, obviously. <laughs>
0: and it's made of a different material. It's made of nitrate, so different than a latex condom. So if there's a latex allergy, you can you can try this internal condom as another method. Yeah. And
2: one thing we've talked about is mm-hmm. the condom, you, you know, improper condom usage and mm-hmm. it breaking. Does that would that break? Is there?
0: Uh, Yeah, if if you use it improperly, there can be slip ups. One of the things that can happen because this is inserted. So the way you insert it is you actually take the internal ring of the product you you twist it in a way to then in, insert into the vagina or anus and then this outside part covers the vulva if it's in a vagina oh. one thing that can happen is when the penis goes into the condom is that it can slip and instead of going into the internal condom actually go into the vulva and then vagina. Wow. There are ways that it can be used improperly and then and break or not do what we want it to do. Mm. So, What would be some of the benefits
1: of using this condom as opposed to the external condom?
0: Yeah, some benefits are that it's much more lubricated. Some people like that. Some people also like that you can insert it ahead of time. So you can insert it up to hours prior to intercourse, mm. which is great if you want to insert it and then you're going out and then instead of ruining what Some folks say, like, ruining the passion and and pausing in the moment. You can actually have that uh, done ahead of time. Hmm. Some of the cons that people don't like are sometimes it can be noisy. I know some of the earlier prototypes, uh, people complained that, the friction of it rubbing together was noisy and interfering. Um, <laughs> there's nothing's
1: perfect. Yep, yeah, nothing, <laughs> nothing's perfect.
0: <laughs> no, not perfect. Um, but then other folks really like it. Yeah. Uh, also empower the person using it that doesn't have a penis that this is another option for them. Yeah. No. I think I think an
1: important piece of that of the existence of the internal condom mm-hmm. is that it gives the control. Of using this particular barrier method, in some ways, to the person with the hole and not yeah. the penis, mm-hmm. as opposed to being dependent on on the penis owner mm-hmm. to put it on or on their body. Mm-hmm. This is you, know, you can put it in your own body if you're the the on the receptive end of
2: of the intercourse. Now I'm outnumbered here, two to none. <laughs> uh, have you have either of you guys used the female condom? Mm-hmm. Have,
0: I have tried it. And? It was fine for me. Okay. Um, for me, it was trying you know, to figure out how to insert it properly first because I think it's a lot more intimidating in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> than, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, <laughs> you when know, I took like, it out of the package, yeah. I'm like,
1: Jesus, what the hell? And you right. also have just
0: less experience with mm-hmm. it. So yeah. it
1: is there's a bit of a learning curve like mm-hmm. with everything else. And you've yep. ne- if you've never seen it, you didn't know it existed. Mm-hmm. There are these two rings. You're not quite certain what to do with the two rings and all that. So yeah, yeah. But once you figure out how to use it, then it's pretty good. It's pretty mm-hmm. straightforward. Yep. But most people have either no idea that it exists right, or maybe have seen it in sex education class and then never seen it or used it since. And it's not something that is very commonly used, right? Yes. Why?
0: That's part of what I set out with the study to look at. We were wondering where this is available because at, for myself as a sex educator, I knew it existed Be because of my education, because of, of seeing it being given out at either health fairs or health clinics or uh, in sex education classes. Other than that, I, I wouldn't know this exists. I didn't see it, you know, walking into CVS or the regular drugstores. So as a person just on the street, I don't know how they would find out about it unless somebody knows and tells them. So looking at the study, we wanted to know where this actually is available because there are sex health education interventions where we're promoting this option for folks and not exactly following up with where they can then get it other than a free setting or it being given out freely.
1: So you set out to map out where is this female condom, internal condom available Yes. in... Philadelphia and mm-hmm. parts of Jersey, mm-hmm. if I'm
0: correct, right? Yes. So the study was looking at the greater Philadelphia metropolitan area, uh, including part of South Jersey. So the Camden, uh, New Jersey area as well across the river.
1: And how did you get involved in this in this research?
0: So I was working with Dr. Courtney Cavanaugh at Rutgers University. Uh, as an undergrad, I was a psychology student. I saw her research at the university and it drew me to actually want to go there. So Part of the reason I went there was because of Dr. Kavanaugh and the research she was doing on interpersonal violence and risky sexual behaviors and HIV prevention. Once there, we were working on a project with domestic violence shelters in the area. And again, the intervention that it was calling for is to present these internal and external condoms. Uh, Well, there's also research shown that condoms in general, but particularly the internal condom, can spark more violence in the encounter as opposed to not introducing this method. Internal Um, condoms? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, So with using the female or internal condom, there's a study shown that it can increase violence in these interactions. So Mm. that that can be very dangerous with that particular population, with any population in general, but definitely in that setting, we wouldn't want to promote something that Mm -hmm. would put women at harm.
2: Mm -hmm. Can you break this down for me? So the violence you're saying when this is introduced in a relationship violence occurs
0: so because of the woman taking ownership of this method and introducing something it can already be in an abusive relationship and because of the power dynamic the partner that is abusive may not like that person trying to take ownership of their sexuality
2: it's sad as hell i mean yeah it, it, it
1: makes sense that's kind of what inspired Taking a look at where these condoms may be.
0: Exactly. So then we wanted to know if we are promoting this um, and doing this in an applied setting, then where can, after the intervention, where can the women follow up and get this product if they want to incorporate it into their life?
1: Hmm. And what'd you find?
0: (laughs) And we found it's not really available. (laughs) It's very limited. We looked at about 2,000 service providers in the area. We made phone calls. We asked. We said, hi, do you provide the female condom? Do you provide the male condom? We were calling gas stations, convenience stores, drug stores, pharmacies, health centers. And what we found is that the male condom was sold or provided about 77% of the places that we called and only 1%. <laughs> wow. 1%. Wow.
2: So you could probably break that out. How, how much is 1% of those who's like?
0: Uh, 1% of who we called was about 15 health centers, one pharmacy. Wow. So
1: you can only get the internal condom in the Philadelphia metropolitan area yeah. and mm-hmm. 15 health centers and one pharmacy. Yes that's
0: a big difference. (laughs) (laughs) Huge difference. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And is it because there's no demand for it or going back to our original point at the top of the show, do people not know it exists?
0: Well, there's also been studies done in other areas like Washington, D.C. show that this is a cost effective way to also use a barrier method similar to the external or male condom. So there's no study showing us exactly why it's not present. Um, Mm. It would be great to know that further. But I think first we need to know, is there a demand? Are people actually using this? How many people are using this? Where do people acquire their condoms from? There's not a lot of research out there.
1: Yeah, it's not a very commonly used method and it's interesting as to why that is the case. You know, what's what comes first? Is it the lack of, of these internal condoms being present in pharmacies and mm-hmm. wherever you get your other condoms? Mm-hmm. Or is it that people just don't like this concept and idea and are never going to like this concept? I mean, is it a matter of lack of education and or availability or both? I don't think we have we understand much about the female condom or the internal condom and how to go about it, mm-hmm. about increasing it.
0: We need more research. We <laughs> yeah, need more research,
1: yes. All right, well, maybe, maybe we will. If you're all listening, let us know if this is something you've tried, if this is something you even knew about, if this is something you would like to see more of or have more availability.
2: I mean, the fact in Philadelphia area, I mean, Dr. John, you don't get to Philly much, but it's a pretty big city. And the fact yeah, that you don't city. have that.
1: And it, another thing that you did in your study was look at uh, – The availability of this uh, contraceptive method or STI prevention method Mm -hmm. in correlation with the HIV rates in some of those areas. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: First of all, Philadelphia is a very um, high HIV rate. We took GIS mapping, so geographic information systems mapping, and took the zip codes of the places that we were calling, plotted those onto a map to show where HIV prevalence is the highest. Uh, So there's areas in red on the maps that show the density of the areas of where HIV is prevalent and then on top of that we placed where condoms are available so both the male and the female condom where those would be available. What we saw is just interpreting the map is that where the female condoms are available aren't even in the most dense areas of where HIV is prevalent. Uh, So there's another added layer to that. How effective is this method going to be from a public health standpoint? We're applying this method, but what is it actually going to do in terms of preventing HIV?
1: I mean, obviously there are other ways to prevent HIV. This is not the the only one, but yeah, if you're thinking about offering as many options as you can mm-hmm. to the people who needed the need them the most. Now we need to do a better job. Casey, you have some other interesting things that you're working with. so this was your undergrad research yes. and you, since you've you've been at Widener and you're doing something uh, something very interesting that you can't tell us too much about because mm-hmm. it's in the data collection process but Tell us what what it is that you're working on.
0: At Widener University, I linked up with Dr. Betsy Crane, uh, who is doing research on exploring erotic potential. So what that is, is we're looking at the experiences of women attending women's retreats and participating in sensuous body work. So that's a mouthful. I can explain. Sensuous body work. (laughs) Interesting,
2: yeah.
1: It's only for girls? It's only for ah, vagina geez, owners. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: What's going on is individuals are participating in somatic sex education practices, so they're uh, having... Body worker, somatic bodywork goes back as a profession back to 2003 uh, in California. So the research that we're doing is based on this sexological bodywork offered within the context of an immersion retreat. Sexological bodywork can range from exploring touch. So it's one-way touch. The sexological bodyworkers are fully clothed. Uh, to give a picture. They have gloves if there's any genital touching. uh, And it can also involve like some massage, some play. And this is helping the women explore their erotic potential.
2: Hmm. And what are you hoping to learn from from this study? Just see what they're getting out of out of these places?
0: Yes. So what we're looking at is the impact it's having on women. So after the women are going to the retreats, we're looking at what impact that has on their sexual vision of themselves. We're looking at arousal, empowerment, body image, healing. And there's all reasons for why women are actually going to these retreats that we're finding. So we're currently conducting our interviews and our data collection. And, you know, women go to these retreats for all different reasons, all different stages in their life. We have a range of participants from 20 years old all the way to currently we have participants 60 years old. So there's Mm -hmm. a large range of women that are looking to explore this.
1: Yeah, you know my business partner Kenneth Play, who we do some of our projects sex education projects. He's one of those sexological body workers at mm-hmm. some of these retreats. So have you have you been to one of those retreats? I have not been to one of these. Really, I'm now. surprised mm-hmm. Kenneth hadn't dragged you up to
2: one of those. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not not yet. Maybe maybe one day. But I get to hear a lot of the stories uh, mm-hmm. based on you know, his experience with some of some of the the, the people there. Some of the environment there but yeah it would be very interesting to to hear more about that uh, once you have some data yeah in your bio we weren't going to talk about this initially but in your bio that you gave us there's something interesting something uh, that we don't hear on the science of sex podcast every day among our guests and that is that you're currently offering infant massage workshops for parents and caregivers to help facilitate bonding consent practices and loving touch Yes, (laughs) Yes, huh? <laughs> I've never,
2: I've never uh, heard of this. So it's baby masseuses. Have,
0: so <laughs> you're, you're a baby masseuse? No, I'm not. That's uh, a common y- misconception. Y- you're a your baby somatic worker. <laughs> no, and that will scare parents off. So let's clarify. Right. <laughs> okay, tell us about this. All right. So with parents and caregivers, infant massage is offered as a facilitation workshop to teach them. So to teach the parents and caregivers how to massage their infants. And why this is so powerful is because it has so many great effects on babies. There's research showing that babies that are born prematurely have gained weight if you massage them versus not massaging them over a period of time. Some of them were able to leave the hospitals earlier. Uh, It helps with digestion. It helps with sleep. It helps regulate Uh, their emotions and and their cycle so it's a great thing for parents to get into and um, I'm offering this (laughs) in the community to work with them if anyone's interested in this.
2: Wow so after like if if the baby's had a rough day at the office he's stressed out (laughs) he's like ma give me a massage or something. Uh, I
1: mean we all like massages. Massages are good for all of us Mm -hmm. why wouldn't they be good for babies? Mm -hmm. That's fascinating yeah. And touch obviously touch between uh, caregivers and and, uh, infants We'll facilitate bonding and connection and all that so yeah absolutely i'm all for it <laughs> yes yeah, so te- teach parents to do more of that
0: yeah and though and it's so relevant also with consent today because we're talking about touch and and what appropriate and inappropriate touch is it's big huge in the media now me too movement so we can actually start these practices with our infants
1: How do infants communicate consent? Because they can't talk. And we've been talking about, (laughs) we've talked quite a bit on the show about, you know, whether all consent needs to be verbal with some people really arguing that all consent needs to be verbal. And if it's not verbal, then it's not real consent and it's not Mm -hmm. enthusiastic. And Mm -hmm. and I'm one of those those people yelling and screaming to those people (laughs) that that's bullshit and that you can absolutely provide enthusiastic consent without saying a single word.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And
1: so babies can't really talk. So how do babies provide consent? Yeah, so Infants.
0: babies um, provide consent, or we call it with babies permission, uh, permission to touch. It's the language that we use. They have eye contact. If they're crying or kicking and screaming, um, that's them telling you yeah. <laughs> that is not their consent. They mm-hmm. There is something wrong, um, and that needs to be stopped right then. Hmm. But when but they are pushing enjoying... You away, yep. right,
1: they away, right? They can... I mean, depending on how young the baby is, but mm-hmm. yeah, babies can certainly manipulate their hands mm-hmm. and they can push you away mm-hmm. or not push you away. Yeah. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm. yep, if they're pushing away or, or on the opposite end of that, if they're pulling you towards them, if they're pulling your hands, if they're laughing, if, if they're staring right in your eyes, um, you know, they might be kicking their feet in an excited way. Um, And that means they're enjoying it. So we we start off with different methods, you know, asking them, doing still touch, so rubbing your hands together and then placing your hands over them without touching first to see how they respond. If they jump, maybe you ease a little bit slower into it. Um, But all types of methods that we're doing in these Infant massage classes. It sounds like
1: it could be very useful to adults in it's figuring true. out sexual consent. <laughs> yeah. Like we all should. of these things that you just mentioned are parts of nonverbal yes. communication when it comes to sexual consent in adults Absolutely. too. So. Cool. Absolutely.
2: Cool. Well, we learned a lot we, today. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. We, we ran the gamut here today. From
2: you the learned feet, something, Doctor
1: Johnson. Internal condoms, infant massages, and consent to <laughs> sexological bodywork. Holy fuck, mm-hmm. Casey! Interesting <laughs> stuff. Interesting Thank stuff. Thank
0: you. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Thanks for being here. Well, Dr. John, I didn't embarrass myself too much with not knowing because even Casey did mention that a lot of people didn't know what the female condom was. I so.
1: stand corrected.
2: <laughs> because you did give me a really dirty look at the top of the show. I, I just...
1: Nothing. All I right, take it cool. all back. Thank take you it very all much. back.
2: All right, Dr. Jana, same bad time, same uh, bad place. Whatever the hell they what? say on that show, <laughs> I don't know. I'll see you next time.
1: See you next time. Bye. Bye. To connect with Dr. Jana
0: and Joe, go to the dot or follow us on Twitter at scienceofsexpod and follow us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.